Good evening. Good evening. Good to be here with you. This will be fun. I think that'll be fun. Okay. All right. Well, it's good to be here with you. Uh, I want to personally apologize to Raymond Pendergraft, who tried to avoid me by coming here tonight, and I still found him. So, he's been over to Maple Avenue a couple times, too, and had to hear me there. Also, I want to say that uh, whenever Shelby Roy was confirming that I was coming tonight, uh, I said, of course I was, and he said that he was anxious to see me, and I was kind of wondering what that meant, but I realized he is happy to see Olivia, he's thrilled to see Elias, and he's anxious to see me. <laughs> but it's still good to be here anyway. Now tonight, as you notice, we are having a change of plans. That's just me changing what sermon I was going to present, and that's kind of tailoring to the audience, because... The audience here, as as I know, at least from my experience, that uh, you all want something more in-depth. You want something you can bite into a little bit, so we're going to try to do that tonight. What we're going to do is ask a question, and the question is fairly simple, and yet there's a, a big answer to it, and so we're going to try to, to unravel it all. But the question is, what were the Jews expecting from the Messiah? And so we're going to try to look at that, and I think that... We have a, a general grasp of what they were expecting, but if, if someone were to press us, I don't know how good of an answer we could give. And I don't know if we would be able to say much besides, well, I, I think I might have read it somewhere, or, or maybe my preacher said such and such about what they were expecting. And so we're going to try to answer that question tonight. And of course, we're going to have to look at a little bit of background, and then we're going to ask that exact question, what were they expecting, and then what can we learn from that? So to start out with, the obvious place to begin, if you're asking where or what the Jews believed that was going to, to come from someone that was the Messiah, you want to answer the question, well, what is the Messiah? Or who would be the Messiah? And so if you go to the Old Testament, you've got a problem. Because in the Old Testament, while the term Messiah is technically used, it is never used to refer to what we think of in the New Testament as the Messiah. It never refers to someone like Jesus. It never refers to someone that was going to come and do certain things, be the son of David. It's never used in that way. Now, that being said, the term Messiah, or the Hebrew Mashiach, is, is used several times. Because it means, if we remember, that person who is anointed, regardless of who that is. And so if it means anointed one, then it can refer to a lot of things. Early on in the Old Testament, we see it in reference to kings. And to priests because they were in fact anointed to serve in their roles. And so that would make sense. Later on though, we, it, that meaning changes or is, is used actually less and less frequently as we go on in the Old Testament. Even the concept that we have of Messiah really wouldn't come about until very late in the Old Testament period. And specifically in the exilic period. And so when we say exilic, we mean that during the time of the exile. And so that's during the time of Jeremiah and Isaiah and a lot of the other prophets. And it's then that we start to get a lot of messages of hope for Israel, a lot of messages of repentance for Israel, but a message that comes along with somebody's coming, and somebody's going to restore these things, and somebody's going to make it better. But before that point, we don't really have that. Now, you could argue and say, well, you, know, you look in the Psalms. There's evidence of Messiah there. Sure, looking back on it, with the full benefit of hindsight, we can see it there. You can even go back to Genesis 3, and you see that he steps on the serpent's head, and that he bites at, at his heel. And you say, oh, that's obviously reference to Jesus. 
If you're a Jew living before Jesus came, is that obvious to you? No, not so much. And so while it's there, it's not until later on, about 500, 600 years before Jesus comes, that we really get this full picture of somebody's coming and somebody's going to make it better. So that is the Messiah. But even still during this exilic period, the only reference or the only usage of the term Messiah that we find is actually in reference to King Cyrus of Persia. And so that's Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. That's, that's it. That's all we get. And so even though the Messiah is there and he's described, we don't actually have any reference to him as the Messiah. So it is a later idea. And we are very familiar with the idea of the Messiah. But the Jews, at the time leading up to Christ, would have been less familiar with it than perhaps we are today. And it's kind of strange to think about because we view them as expecting fully every day that the Messiah would be there. And yet in their minds, the concept was only loosely formed. That doesn't mean that they didn't have certain ideas associated with the Messiah. They did. We'll talk about those ideas. But it was certainly not as much of a part of daily life as we tend to think that it may be. In fact, it's not until about 200 years after Christ that you start to get a lot of rabbinical writing on this subject. And so a lot of that seems to be even in response to Jesus coming. And the Jews having to kind of scramble and say, uh-oh, well, they say it's him, so who is this Messiah? And how can we explain it in a way that doesn't point to this man? But it is a much later idea. Also, we want to acknowledge that a lot of what we know about the expectations around the Jewish Messiah actually come from the New Testament, not the Old. And so we'll take a look at that a little bit, but that's probably why we have that vague familiarity, because we've read the New Testament, and we see the apostles in particular in their understanding or lack of understanding who this Messiah would be. The Messiah, though, in this Old Testament period, later Old Testament period, the conception of the Messiah actually took different forms. And so you have three primary ideas about a Messiah. And the two of them have names, one of them has kind of a title. The first one is the Mashiach ben David, which just means the Messiah, the son of David. And that's kind of the one we think of. It's the kingly figure that would be coming to restore the nation of Israel to its right place. And certainly we get that in the Old Testament. We see reference after reference to that in the Old Testament. And the Jews saw that as well. That's the one that they looked for mostly. Another form that the Messiah took was the Mashiach ben Yosef. And that would be the Messiah, the son of Joseph. And this one's a little bit different. He's supposed to come from the tribe of Ephraim, which is a little bit strange. But he was supposed to be more of a priestly figure or a religious leader that was going to come and restore temple worship and even Torah governance, meaning having a, a law based around the old law. So those are two forms that we see. And then the third form is that of the suffering servant. And the suffering servant is the, the picture that we get in places like Isaiah chapter 53 or in Psalm 22, where we see this, this unfortunate figure that's suffering for the sake of others. But really, most Jews kind of ignored that entirely. And the sect of the Essenes, if you're familiar with them, the, the group that writes the Dead Sea Scrolls, they hold to this, that there would be a Messiah that would come and be a suffering person. But the rest of the Jews mostly ignored it. And actually, after the time of Christ, sort of ironically, 
there was a lot of discussion as to what Isaiah 53 meant, and it, it started to move toward a, an idea that it referred to all of Israel as a nation. Because obviously it can't refer to one person, because if Isaiah 53 refers to one person, it can only refer to one person that ever lived, at least perfectly. And it does for Christ, but they, they worked around that by saying, well, it's, it's, it's an allegory for the nation as a whole and the suffering that they would face. So not the best explanation of it, but that was kind of their explanation. Now, all three of these forms, though, it makes it sound like everybody believed that there were three different messiahs. Well, that's not really true. A lot of people did think that these would be in one person or maybe a couple people, and the ideas varied quite a bit. As it happens any time that you have a lot of people thinking about the same subject, you're going to get different ideas. But those are the three forms that the Messiah will take. But again, we want to acknowledge that with its late arrival within Judaism and with the later start of the discussion among rabbis on the subject, that this was not as much of a factor in daily life among Jews as we thought that it may be. And so if that's true, then if we're asking the question, which is often asked, why did the Jews miss the Messiah? One simple answer is they weren't looking quite as hard as we might have expected them to. Uh, one way that this is kind of exemplified, and one further problem that's created here, is that there were, in spite of the, the lack of popularity of an idea of a Messiah, there were plenty of people who claimed to be the Messiah. And that's still true today. There are plenty of people that claim to be the Messiah. But this happened quite a bit, and it was, I don't know if it was a monthly occurrence, but you could kind of imagine it that way. But there's a saying that comes from the first century that I find humorous and fascinating as well. But there's a saying about the Messiah. It says, if you should happen to be holding a sapling in your hand, the sapling being a, a young tree, so if you should happen to be holding a sapling in your hand when they tell you that the Messiah has arrived, first, plant the sapling. And then go out and greet the Messiah. So why would you do that? Because you're probably not about to meet the Messiah. Instead, go, go ahead and take whatever trivial task you have, finish that up, and then go out and greet this person. So it was that common of an occurrence. And so we have a combination of, well, it's a, a later idea to develop anyway. It's not as much of a factor as we think it is. And beyond that, there were a lot of people claiming to be a false Messiah anyway, or claiming to be a true Messiah, when in fact they were not. So then, what does that mean for the Jews? What did the Jews expect? Well, it's not that they didn't expect a Messiah at all. They did. And even from the earliest days of this discussion of somebody being a Messiah, there were certain beliefs about who this person had to be. Again, we have to give the, the fair warning here that not all people agreed on this, but in general, we can say a few things. So there are five things that would generally be agreed upon, not always, that the Messiah was going to be. If you were a Jew living up around the time of Christ, this is what you would expect. Number one, that they would be the son of David. Well, that's not too surprising. We see that too many times in the Old Testament for anybody to miss. Even just a cursory reading of it, you're going to see this. In our text that was read for us in Jeremiah chapter 23, I chose this text not because it's the exclusive messianic prophecy of the Old Testament, but instead, it does a good job of summarizing several of the points of belief about the Messiah that would come. So in our text, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, we see that exact idea. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, and 
So it's in there time and time again. It's the, the branch of David or Jesse even. And so we get that reference to the house of David being the one that would be the ancestors to Messiah. Although, as we said, some people did believe that he'd come from a, a different line, or at least some Messiah would come from Ephraim or somewhere else. Second thing is that he would need to be the king of Israel. And that, again, is kind of obvious, and we see that in the second part of verse 5 in our text, that a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And so they would have to be a king. It was prophesied, it was obvious enough, but it's a question of how exactly that king would rule, but he was supposed to rule over Israel and Judah. Third thing, that he would gather all Jews to himself. And so we see that in our text again now in verse 3. It says, But I will gather the remnants of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And so there was a, a certainty that the Messiah would bring all Jews from all places back together. Maybe a note on that, just in case you aren't familiar with, with Jewish history to this point. That was necessary because of the scattering that had happened. And so the term that's usually used is diaspora, which just means that you've been scattered about. And the diaspora are those people that have been left in Babylon, in Assyria, people that have fled farther even into Europe. By this point, people that fled into Egypt. And so you've got a... A population of Jews that is no longer in Israel. And so the promise is that one day they would all be brought back. Again, the question is how liberal is this going to be? Fourth thing, though, he would restore Torah law. And so in the early days with Moses, that's, that's how it operated. The law was the same as the rules in the Old Testament. And there was no difference between them. There was no legal authority separate from that. And the idea is the Messiah will come and he will restore that system. On top of that, he'll restore the proper worshiping in the temple because that's part of the law as well. And so we've got that idea to be part of this. Fifth thing, and the last thing, is that he would bring peace to Israel. And that concept, again, is easy enough to find. You find it in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, among many other places. I forgot to mention with restoring the law. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 17 and 18, you get an example of that as well. But he would bring peace to Israel, and a time of peace would follow his arrival. That was kind of the idea. Again, how exactly was that going to work? Well, if you're a Jew living at a time around the time of Christ, give or take a couple hundred years, your understanding of this is probably going to be largely physical. And I don't really blame them all that much. We, we tend to look back at the Jews and say, well, why did they not get it? Well, if you read this, if you read the text that we just read, it sure sounds like it's going to happen physically, on earth, in real time. Right. And when we look back at it, we say, oh, well, it's obvious. Jesus meant it to be the church, and, and he meant it that it was going to be spiritual. If you're a Jew, that's, that's just not how you're going to naturally read the text. And that's a little difficult. But it was obvious to them. And that this fully physical way of restoring Israel would be for the benefit of the physical nation of Israel. Even though, in reality, God often accomplishes his goals very differently than we expect. Right. It, an example of this, in the book of Judges, you're, you're familiar with the story of Gideon. And Gideon has to face an army of about 120, 130,000. And so if we expect God to defeat that army, then how should he do it? Well, in my mind... I need a force with at least 
300,000. So I have double the manpower. I really like some advanced technology so that I can, uh, I can out-compete them with their weaponry. I, I want every advantage I can get. And God says, uh, okay, that's a good suggestion. But how about I give you 300 men and some jars, some torches, and some horns? And that'll work. So God sometimes, or more than sometimes, oftentimes, he will do things in a way that we do not expect. And so the Jews were expecting something. It didn't happen that way. But one other point I want to make with this, if you look at this list, exclude the son of David. That doesn't really have anything to do with this. But otherwise, if somebody's going to be the king of Israel, maybe if they're going to gather all Jews, if they're going to restore the proper Old Testament law, if they're going to bring peace to Israel, then what massive problem stands in their way? It would be the Roman government. And so when we look at the Jews of the New Testament, we see all these revolts that keep happening. Why did they keep happening? Because according to them, the Messiah was supposed to do one thing for them. Get rid of the Romans. Not, not directly. They didn't think that was prophesied. But to fulfill these prophecies, the Messiah better do it. He better get rid of those Romans because otherwise there's no peace. You're following Roman law, not Jewish law, and there's no king of Israel. Instead, there's a governor named Pilate. So you can't have it both ways if it's talking physically, and the Jews certainly expected that to be the case. Now, in the New Testament, like you mentioned, we get to see the apostles, and the apostles in a few different places, and we won't hit all of them, but the apostles get to give us a view of what the average person would have expected as far as the Messiah and the kingdom that was coming. And I say average because the apostles in reality were quite average people. And so they would pretty well represent the average to lower class of that day and their expectations and their understandings of these Old Testament prophecies around the Messiah. And so we look at different places. But if you look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, if you remember there, this is James and John's mother asking from Christ, saying, uh, whenever you come into your kingdom, I would really like it if one of my sons sat on your left side and one on the right. Do you think there's any question that she meant when you establish your physical kingdom here on that physical throne, this is where I want my sons to sit? I don't think she had an expectation of the spiritual. And so we get to see not actually an apostle here, but the, the mother of an apostle that has this expectation of things happening physically. The most telling example comes in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, after Jesus died and came back to life, the question is still asked in verse 6, Lord, will you restore the kingdom at this time to Israel? It's embarrassing that that question is even asked. And I would have asked that question too. Because I wouldn't have gotten it. And we wouldn't have gotten it. But they ask that question, and they want to know the answer in a physical understanding. They, they think, well, Jesus, you haven't done it yet. And Jesus, I, he has to just look around and say, what do you think I did that for? That was the establishment of the kingdom. And in a few weeks, you're going to help the, the, that kingdom to grow to be over 3,000 people. And yet they don't get it. So there is a, a certain understanding that takes place. Jesus, in John chapter 18, verse 36, in his discussion with Pilate before his crucifixion, famously states that his kingdom is not of this world. If his kingdom were of this world, his followers would fight for him, but his kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus' understanding is completely different than the people of his day. 
They expected a leader. They expected a warrior. They expected somebody to, to fight off the oppressors that they had or the occupiers of their territory, the Romans. But none of those things were going to happen in the way that they thought they understood. I'm going to turn to history for just a second now, aside from the Bible. In fact, this happens after the time that the Bible is complete. In about 135 A.D., there is a revolt of the Jews against the Romans. Big surprise, right? It happens several times, both before Jesus and after Jesus. This revolt in particular is called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. So Bar Kokhba is B-A-R, which of course means son of, uh, and then K-O-K-H-B-A, so Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Simon Bar Kokhba is the leader of this rebellion. Now his last name is not actually that, but there is a religious figure of the day that names him Simon Bar Kokhba, which means Simon, son of the star. Now that sounds kind of strange to us, and it is, except that if you go back to Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, that appears to be a reference to the Messiah. And so this man has been named something that should be reserved for the Messiah. Why is that? Because a lot of people in that day, not everybody, but a lot of people expected this Simon Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. Okay? So he leads a force of about 200,000 men against the Roman army. And as you might expect, that force of 200,000 men, uh, of that force, about 200,000 men are slaughtered by the Roman army because that's how they dealt with rebellions. And Bar Kokhba himself is included in that number. He, he was killed alongside his people. But in this four-year revolt that we see, I think we get the best example historically of what the Jews were looking for in a Messiah. So this is about 100 years after Jesus. But this man... He rebels against the Romans. That's the most important factor. But in terms of, of religiosity, he, he kind of falls low on the, the scale here. So he is pretty ruthless in that he would punish anyone, even Jews, who would not join his fighting force. Even more so for Christians. He would torture Christians that wouldn't join in his cause. And also, kind of as a side note, he's, he's thought to have killed his own uncle, which makes him an upstanding citizen as well. And this is what the, the people look to. Also, whenever his soldiers would come to him and offer their services to fight for him, he required them as a show of bravery and of loyalty to cut off one of their own fingers. That's, that's what you expect from a Messiah, right? And yet that's what they do expect. He's also quoted as saying this prayer before entering battles that he would engage in. The prayer is, O Master of the Universe, there is no need for you to assist us against our enemies, but do not embarrass us either. Now, does that sound like the words of Messiah? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you're a Jew that's looking for a physical kingdom to be established, then you need somebody that's this harsh, somebody that's this much of a warrior to establish that physical kingdom. Now, that's not what Christ looked like, but this shows us that a rash, violent, revolutionary is a little bit more in line with what the Jews sought after in the terms of Messiah than someone that was peaceful, someone that was loving, and someone that was spiritual. Maybe a lesson in that is that uh, they wanted a Messiah that served their purposes. They wanted a Messiah that agreed with them. They wanted a Messiah that, that fulfilled the things that they wanted. But of course the question is, if, if you're Messiah, 
is only there to do the things that you want, then is it the Messiah of God or is it your Messiah? And so they sought out not God's Messiah, but the Messiah that they thought would be, that would be good enough to fulfill what they needed at that time, what they thought they needed. So a few things in the way of application. First thing, in the form of a question, why did the Jews reject Jesus? Well, as we said at the beginning, because they weren't looking for him quite as far as maybe we regularly think that they were. It just wasn't as firm of a concept in their mind as it was later on, or especially compared with the idea of the Messiah in Christianity. We have a much stronger commitment to the Messiah than even Jews today really do. But the second thing is they expected him to look different than he did or to behave differently than he did. They wanted Simon Barcoca, and they got Jesus. And, and they couldn't, couldn't understand the difference between those two. And they, they couldn't recognize that one was spiritual, one was physical. But why else did the Jews miss Jesus? Well, of course, because they didn't understand things in the spiritual. They were looking for the physical. But also they ignored, like we said, some of the less glamorous parts of the prophecies about the Messiah to come. They ignored Psalm 22. They ignored Isaiah 53 because that's, that's physical weakness. And your Messiah can't show that. They, they have to be that, that harsh and, and rugged personality that they were looking for. So second question, what do the Jews believe today? And that's kind of difficult to answer because people, if you get more than two people in a room, they'll, they'll disagree. And so with the Jews, certainly there are different sects of the Jews that disagree largely on this. But in general, or sort of the orthodox view, is that the Messiah will still come. And it's largely the same concepts that we already talked about, that he will in fact be the son of David, he will be a king of Israel, he'll restore the nation of Israel, he'll bring peace to Israel, all those things. That's still the, the general concept of what's taught today. And that's actually been more firmly established, I guess you'd say, since about the 11th century. Uh, if you know Jewish history at all, there's a, a, a scholar by the name of Maimonides. And he, among other things, sets up 13 sort of pillars of faith for the Jews. And sort of just summarizing what Jews think as a, a belief statement. But one of those 13 principles, the core Jewish beliefs here, is this. And, and to quote it, it says... I believe with full faith in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he tarries with all that, I await his arrival with every day. And so it's still there. The concept is there. And it, for us, it should be heartbreaking to look at that. It should be heartbreaking to think that there are millions of people that are still waiting for the Messiah. Now, there are plenty of people that aren't looking for him in the first place. But for many Jews today, they still are waiting for somebody that's been here for 2,000 years. Alongside that, though, it's probably worth noting that the Jews today, about half of Jews who are ethnically Jewish, about half are religiously Jewish. And that means in any way. That doesn't mean faithful, diehard Jews. It just means they are religious in some way. But many of them are non-religious at all. And so the principle there is that after rejecting Jesus, what happened? Well, everything went downhill. Not just for the, the, the non-believing Jews, but even the believing Jews. Everybody ended up kind of headed that direction. So, don't reject Jesus, I suppose, is one principle there. But another question that has to be asked since we've talked about it for this long is, is Jesus the Messiah? And the answer is yes, without a doubt. 
but why? We'll go back to the five things that were believed. First thing, Jesus was, in fact, the son of David. Now, that one's actually disputed a little bit among the Jews. They, they tried to claim that he was not, but he is the son of David, and because of that, he at least has a claim to be the Messiah. Beyond that, of course, he's the son of the Holy Spirit, which is the more important of the two. Not that the Jews would have been looking for that as part of the description for the Messiah. Second thing, though, is that he was king. He claimed himself to be the king of the Jews. Not that he was accepted by his people, but he was king. He was son of David, which makes him a rightful heir to the throne. And again, he's the son of God. What better royal line can you come from than that? So he is king. Third thing, he gathered not the Jews to himself, but he gathered all people to himself. Now, how far away of a concept is that for the Jews, that the Messiah would come not to bring just the Jews to himself, but the Gentiles as well? That's beyond their scope of imagination, certainly. Fourth thing, he also restored God's law. Now, he did not restore the Torah, of course, but he, he expanded on the Torah. He fulfilled the law. He revealed God's new law, built on the old law for us today. And so it wasn't what was expected, but again, Jesus was that restorable law. And did Jesus bring peace? That last principle that we talked about, he did bring peace, really in two senses. And I'll, I'll go ahead and claim that, that historically speaking, there's been more peace since Christianity was introduced than there was in the rest of world history. And so it may not be perfect, but it's more peaceful than it was. But even disregarding that, did Jesus bring peace? Yes, beyond this earth. And there will be eternal peace because of him, Amen. regardless of what happens in the rest of time on this planet. So it is perfect peace, just not always on earth. So what happened with the Jews? Well, they were expecting something that was, that was not what God had planned. It's, it reminds me of the story of, of Naaman, just to use another simple Old Testament example. But Naaman expected what? He expected the physical show to happen. There was spirituality in it, but he wanted the show. He, he desired to see the signs that God would perform. He sought after signs, which ironically is what the Jews sought after, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. But he saw a sign, and he wanted the physical display, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't allow something so simple and yet so spiritual as washing in water could, could save him of his, his problem. Of course, there's an obvious parallel for us in baptism today, but the bigger point here is not to ignore the spiritual when looking at the physical. And the bigger problem is the Jews missed Jesus once. Today, though, we have no excuse. We've seen the Messiah. We know the Messiah. He's been here. And we were looking for him. If we fail to see him, it's on us. But there's one more step to that. The Messiah will return one more time. And when he does, nobody, not us, and not the Jews, will ignore him. That's right. But everybody will see. And everybody will understand this man was the man prophesied about in the Old Testament. The man that was promised to come. And to be the anointed one, to be the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ. And so this evening, if you know the Messiah, wonderful. This is your time to uh, accept him if you have not. This is your time to obey him if you have not. And tonight, if you have already done that, that's wonderful. We're, we're happy for you. But there's a world of lost people that are outside of this building. The, we talked about this morning, 
in the lesson at Maple Avenue, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and following, the illustration is given that we are the light of the world, but you can put the, the light of the world under a basket. And sometimes that basket, unfortunately, can be uh, a room that looks just about like this. And it can sit right on top of that light, all of the lights in this room, to where they do not shine out into the world. Tonight, that, that's not where we're going to leave things. So tonight, you got your options in front of you. If you know the Messiah, obey him tonight. If you've never done it before. And tonight, if you've already done that, then share that beside with someone else. Is there anything we can do for you? If there's any need that you have in the church, maybe better if there's something you can do for the church and step up that you haven't done before, this is your opportunity. If there's anything that we can do, come forward now as we stand, as we sing. While we pray and while we bleed, while you sing your souls in need, while you
Right. <clears throat> I, it, it's pretty easy little song. Oh Lord, prepare me the sanctuary.